Now we don't have any value. So last episode, I said that I couldn't wait as we were talking about the NFT stuff um, and um, and stock market and stuff uh, mm -hmm. that I couldn't wait until the next uh, wackadoo bananas um, capitalism is a nightmare made up schizoid cult event would happen. <laughs> and then the whole Suez Canal thing happened. You summoned it. I did. It's um, uh, like uh, so. It, it, it's one of the big problems that we run into sometimes with Marx. So Marx famously said, you know, history repeats itself first as tragedy, then as then as farce, or second uh -huh. as farce. He didn't really cover what happens on the third through one millionth repetition. Um, and <laughs> it, it apparently it's so. You know, you know what what absolutely slaps about that quote. Uh, what he attributes it to Hegel, but there's no footnote. Yeah, <laughs> it says I, Hegel remarks somewhere, and I'm quoting from 18th of Brumel. Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historic facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. He forgot to add the first time is tragedy, the second time is false. And it's like we have not been able to find where <laughs> Hegel says that. <laughs> it's like he he implies it a little bit when he talks about dialectics, and that's that's one of the pivotal like functions of dialectics. So you can see where Marx would come up with that he must have said this because dialectics kind of works that way is that um and it's one of the things that Nietzsche the the great anti-hegelian mm -hmm. um even riffs on and agrees with Hegel on is that there are these repetitions or at least rhymes of history and and that has a kind of a kind of power to it um not a mystical one obviously neither one of them ascribe mystic power to it but then yeah Marx just sort of it's funny because that quote's really good for summing up yeah. elements of dialectics. It's just, yeah, like you mentioned, like yeah. he, he made that up. That that was not said by Hegel anywhere. Yeah, um, I, I think that like characterizes 18th of Brumel pretty well. It's a really good text. It's oh, yeah. one of Marx's like best written texts, but I think it's so well written because he steps away from some of his rigor on it. It's not as accurate i would say and not as um technical so it makes for a more readable text and it allows him to make these like grander gestures i don't know i just really like that text yeah. i think it's my favorite marx text i i agree i i my my big um my big marxist leninist shame is that i've never actually made it all the way through um the capital Mm -hmm. There, there gets to, I even like, I like math a lot. I look up stuff about math. I read about math. I'm a yeah. casual mathematician. Just, I, just cause I think it's neat. Like I'm not super deep with it, but I follow it and I find it really neat. He gets to the equations in the capital <laughs> and I'm like, bro, bro, <laughs> I'm just, I'm, take, I'm take a chill pill. Especially when he's like, now I'm no mathematician, but, and then he thumbnail sketches these like polyvariable um uh these polyvariable like algebraic and calculus equations and i'm mm -hmm. like bro what the like you're it, it's it's really funny how self-effacing he is as a mathematician and then you look at the shit that he writes down and it's 
we've since um marxist economists have since found that his equations aren't super accurate but they're way yeah. more accurate than someone literally just riffing would come up with like <laughs> they're wrong in the way that you'd expect the person who comes up with a conjecture but hasn't really nailed down the specifics so in in both philosophy and mathematics conjectures are a big thing and to the lay person the difference between um, a theory, a statement, a conjecture. These seem kind of fuzzy, but they're um, they're they're pretty rigid terms. So a conjecture is a little bit more rigid than just like a stray thought, not quite as rigid as a theory, not quite as rigid as a law. And it's something that you have some evidence for, or you have some you can have you have something that you're pointing to for like, mm -hmm. I think this is true because I'm looking at this, and it strongly seems to imply this thing. But you call it a conjecture because you don't have the proof yet. Yeah. And then, you know, a theory has the proof and theories are what people think laws are. Um, and then <laughs> laws are much more rigid. So like, yeah. like the laws of gravitation are substantially more solid than people tend to think. But yeah, he, uh, he writes down basically a mathematical conjecture and is about as accurate, even though in his words, he's like, no, nah, I don't really do math. I'm a journalist. And then drops fucking calculus into it. Like, just what yeah. a Chad move. Um, so, interestingly, my, my, yeah. my, 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 my point with the whole, uh, he doesn't comment on what happens on the third through one millionth, uh, repetition is that it's like, um, so, you have numbers and then you have addition and that addition's like the first step of adding in a certain way. And then multiplication is like, at, is to adding what adding is to counting. And you're like, okay. And then exponents are to multiplication, what adding or what multiplication is to adding and what adding is to counting. And so you can form this like slope of intensity. And uh, what he, uh, what he didn't comment on is that the farce just gets more farcy. <laughs> uh, the further in you go to the point where one boat decides my favorite thing about the fucking Suez Canal thing is that the ever given finds out it's not even supposed to be in the canal yeah. which again I don't want to get too deep into the nerdery of modern day shipping and the material reality of that although as a Marxist I do quite love the material reality of these otherwise abstract things but by and large in a modern fucking shipping vessel, you don't accidentally wind up in the Suez Canal. So that's not a thing that happens. So let me posit something. <laughs> um, let me posit something here. The Ever Given is not a modern shipping vessel. It's a postmodern shipping vessel. Oh shit! Oh, and I'll explain. Shit. I'll explain what I mean. <laughs> so I tweeted recently that. What was it? The, the the ever given is a hyper object and the Suez Canal is the Minotaur's <laughs> labyrinth. Um, and I said that I will not elaborate, but I shall. So if you go back to our House of Leaves discussion, one of the things that that book does really well is, you know, how space becomes convoluted, both in an abstract sense, but also in a very physical sense, by the meaning and the signifiers and the layers of interaction that humans place on that space. By the way, this also ties into our book, right? So all of this ties yeah. in really together, uh, really well together. So if you look at the Suez Canal, it's such an enticing modernist project, right? It's, 
it was it's started one of, one of the defining modernist projects that and the Panama yeah. Canal are and, and the Hoover Dam are like these, yeah, these for sure. major yeah but the thing is if we're going a bit like psychoanalytic for a second the Panama Canal is like really complicated because it has locks there's a lot of uh, elevation gains so yeah. it's really mechanical and the Hoover Dam is a construction of stoppage right it stops water the Suez Canal is both a flow and it's a relatively straightforward flow, right? It's a relatively clean canal as opposed to something like the Panama Canal. And I think more than anything, it really captures the audacity and the sheer maglomania of the colonial project. And that's something that was really missing for me from the discussion about the Ever Given. The Suez Canal is like the epitome of a colonial project. It was built by the French in collaboration with um, the Pasha, Said Pasha, uh, um, of Egypt and Sudan at that point. Um, and they, of course, created a private company to do it. And, and listen to the name of the private company. The International Commission, this is a French company, there's nothing international about it, for the piercing of the Isthmus of Suez. Now, like, the word piercing should trigger all sorts of like Freudian, Lacanian kind of like alarms. This, the conception of the canal is 100% of a sword thrust, right? Of a cut of, of something that's even phallic, right? Going into, uh, you know, the Nile Delta, which is, you know, in the romantic colonial imagination the birthplace of humanity, of culture, right? So all of these meanings in the modern world brought about this creation, which is, of course, as a Marxist, first and foremost, a material economic creation, right? But then as we move past the tragedy and then the farce and we get to the postmodern age, all of those meanings have been um, forgotten, or like a palimpsest, right? They're faintly glimpsed. Like people vaguely know that it was a French project and they vaguely know that it has something to do with Egypt's location and they kind of know that it's important. But then this ship blocks it and suddenly all of these meanings come back as zombies, right? As these weird shambling, like for fuck's sake, it took like 48 hours before you got ever given Chan anime porn written <laughs> And created like not, I guess drawn digitally drawn about this ship. So God bless humanity, by the way. God, God, bless, God bless the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this classic move between this momentous, phallic, aggressive, and um, megalomanic modernist project, like I don't know the U.S. Let's say, or modern military, and then it rolls into it into itself and contorts into itself when we enter the postmodernist stage into this prestige of interactions and meanings and ideas that by the way still mask a very real economical reality like last thing i'm going to say here is if you if you drill into the materialness of it egypt is one of the poorest countries in its region it wasn't always the case because the U.S. also used to support them and they, they support them less now, but also because of geopolitical 
um, changes and political, uh, like internal political changes, but they are in charge physically of one of the world's most important shipping lanes, and yet they're poor, right? Because they don't, they're not a Western country, right? So, and they get bullied economically to keep that canal open. And it's one of the insane things about that is like, so we have the, the standard image of the, um, the bridge tax and, you know, how, how perfidious it is in, you know, the history of England that you'd have taxmen on bridges that people need to go across. And you're basically asking poor people to give up, you know, what little pennies they have in order to be able to go see their family in order to go to the market, all this kind of stuff. And we invoke this image to say, and that's why you shouldn't, tax these shipping lanes because it will absolutely but the obviously the the marxist component here is first it was literal colonization egypt was functionally a shared british uh french state for a while Mm -hmm. on paper it wasn't on paper it was independent it was never actually explicitly controlled but for all intents and purposes, it was like Iran after World War One, where Britain more or less called the shots, like to the point where when Iran democratically elected a socialist um, president who tried to nationalize the oil fields that BP had British Petroleum, which is what that's short for, put in, uh, Britain tapped the US on the shoulder and was like, hey, can you guys handle this? And the CIA um, disappeared him, um, more or less. So. Yeah. So we have the, this functional reality of of the colonialism giving birth to this thing and it being this contortion of like, if you don't do this, the bullying in specific is like, we'll shut you out of all basic economic function. Like, we won't necessarily have explicit sanctions against you, but good fucking luck getting any decent placement in markets across the world. And... What's really wild about this is that notion of the bridge tax, or uh, which which you see in all kinds of shipping ports. Um, you, we we still have that in New York. We have that in San Francisco. We have that in like all. We have that in London. Um, all these major major places that you have to pay certain fees, certain tolls. Um, you have to get licenses, things like that. All kinds of all kinds of different ways of collecting revenue off of these things because of the admittedly somewhat fair justification that you know running running a pier isn't cheap running you know shipping and distribution isn't cheap all that kind of stuff but then all of a sudden it becomes uh egypt invokes this uh even even lightly gestures to it of like hey maybe we could and no no absolutely not it's uh one of the deep um economic um, vicious insanities of yeah. of and, contemporary capitalism. Yeah, and, and if you already mentioned vicious insanity, of course we need to dig deeper here and say that like whenever you hear someone say capitalism is a death cult, there is an element of shock and like metaphor to that, but also in a very real, literal, physical sense, it's a death cult. And the canal is a really good example. Um, it's estimated that over 30,000 people were working on the canal at any given period. And in general, more than 1.5 million people from various countries, well, I guess 
the international part of the name of the company comes from were employed. Um, and they, a lot of them were employed via Corve, which is a system, specifically a French system, but which was very common all across the world, especially in Europe, of forced labor um, being employed on that canal. And it's really hard to estimate, but the, the lowest is tens of thousands of those workers died of mainly of cholera and other epidemics like it, which developed on the obviously subpar conditions in which they were living because the company was looking to save any penny that they could. Um, There's a famous quote that puts that death toll at 120,000, but that's um, pretty... That's a debated figure from what I saw. It's very debated, yeah. But uh, it's, it's at least tens of thousands of people. There's like a very low figure of 3,000, but somewhere in the middle. So it's it's literally when we say that on this conduit of global capitalism, you know, this is the 19th century, the mid-19th century when global capitalism was just, you know, shaking off its Cthulhu-esque wings and being born, and this conduit was part of its birth, part of what made it possible. On the altar of this thing, tens of thousands of people were sacrificed, like straight up sacrificed. If you think like the people who put them in that housing didn't know that they would die, then you're wrong. Like epidemics yeah, we have, won't. Yeah, we we have we have letters from people in these positions um, talking about the conditions that their own workers are in, and it yeah. So it's. We we have demonstrable evidence that they knew very well what was going to happen. Yeah, um, and of course, if we fast forward, the Suez Canal is also in the center, as Langdon alluded to, of the post World War II neo-colonial phase. Right, well, outright colonialism and occupation is no longer the norm, although it keeps happening like in Israel, but also in a lot of other places. And it's not by accident that I bring up Israel because the Suez Canal and Israel being barred from the shipping lane is was at the center of Egypt-Israeli conflicts and more in general Arab-Israeli conflicts to the point that during the Six-Day War, um, that's one of the reasons that Israel occupied the Sinai Peninsula so that they could reach the east bank of the Suez Canal and allowing Israel to um, allowing Israel to use that shipping lane to the extent that Israel had an exclave on that bank of the Suez Canal even after the war um, was done. And th- actually, there's a personal note here because my dad fought in the Yom Kippur War in 1973, and before he was injured, he almost died, he crossed the Suez Canal into Egypt as part of the Israeli counterattack. And if you're thinking about like, you know, it's the same years, if you're thinking about like images that you might know from Vietnam of like men dying in this canal and being gunned down, that's exactly what it was. Like it was an awful, terrible battle. Um, And of course, we need to remember that all of these wars, even though it's very gosh or like a four par to point it out these were proxy wars like that doesn't get fed into the main narrative especially not in israel but these were proxy wars that the us and russia and local forces as well and israel itself were fighting 
supposedly over patriotism and religion and whatever, but actually about control of shipping lanes and oil and other goods and natural gas and, and other other goods, right? So you start to see how this money, blood, death, war, all of these things mingle into this, and that's why I call it the Minotaur's Labyrinth, right? It gets so confusing, so heady, so um, disorienting, but it's like trying to navigate a labyrinth and it's just a canal. Like if you go there, it's just a body of water and you look at it and it looks, I haven't had the chance, right? But looking at video and people who've been there, it's just a fucking river, right? That's what it looks like. Yeah, like it's it's narrower across than most like commercial parking lots that you'd think yeah. about. And it's it's very surreal when you look at that. So one one of the reasons why it became so pivotally important um, is uh, so less on the economic end of things. That's obviously a major component, but we have to remember, and Marx gives us a lot of insight to this, economics in a lot of ways is the lay manifestation of power. This isn't really the real engine. It's okay. So how does the phrase this? These things form a feedback loop, but the feedback loop doesn't start with money. The feedback loop starts with power mm-hmm. and control. So we have things like militaristic dominance is, is more the fundamental unit. It creates this feedback loop where you need economy to support this thing, but the war machine, the death machine, the the, the controlling machine, that is the fundamental thing. Um and once you once the loop is established, that's when you can really make it spiral out of control and do absolutely insane, horrible things because each step feeds into the next. There's very little entropy in that machine, just a lot. Well, a lot of entropy if you consider human yeah. death uh, a kind of entropy, but external entropy, kind of like exports um, its entropy onto people's yeah. bodies, right? So the Suez Canal initially wasn't necessarily embarked upon just for economic ends. That was a justification for it. But one of the big concerns, especially as warfare reached uh, the age of oil. Um, So this touches on elements of the history of warfare. Um, Supply lines have always been a fundamental unit of warfare, especially non-localized war. So Mm -hmm. localized conflict, um, thinking in terms of Delanda and Deleuze here, you don't necessarily need a supply line. You're going out and you're fighting your neighbor and you and your neighbor live next to each other and you're within earshot of, of your home, which is where your guns are. It's where your family is. So if you need more people, you shout, more people come. If you need weapons, they just bring them to you. Technically, it's a supply line, but it's so hyper-localized, you don't really think about it. The minute you start having long-distance war, so this is things like Scotland fighting England. There's that period where the Scottish people live quite a quite a bit away from England, and the English people live quite a bit away from Scotland. And so if you want to have a conflict, unless you're having it um, at your own doorstep, you have to have literally a supply line, which is exactly what it sounds like. This is how you get people to the front. This is how you get food to the front. This is how you get... Um, weapons to the front. This is how you get beds, medicine, you know, any number of things. And Mm -hmm. that any number of things is very important. You start building up a whole bunch of things that you need to get. Now, you extend this a little bit further. If England and France want to get into a war, now you have boats that 
are involved and you need to have piers and you need to be able to dock these boats or at least get them close enough to shore that you can, you know, rowboat to land, things like that. Um, as we build up in these eras, these you, you start drawing lines on a map, quite literally, only instead of border lines, there's supply lines. So it's like, oh, there's a, a pass in these mountains and it's going to be easier for us to move the amount of volume that or the volume of supplies that we have uh, if we go there. And, you know, your opponents know this and they go, oh, well, you know, we can assume that they're going to move their supplies through here, which means that if we attack, this is where it gets to. If you attack the supply line, you can choke out the forces and everything becomes super easy. This is actually quite literally how most war is fought. Very little yeah. war, period, over the whole of history is fought by getting all your dudes together and shooting at each <laughs> other until one army is completely gone. It's a series of chess moves of attacking supply lines. Like the Ho Chi Minh Trail, very famously, was just the supply line. But it was so pivotal to the Vietnam War that that was the white whale for, for the U.S. and colonial forces, was de defeating not an army, but a supply line. Yeah. And we couldn't. Um, so in the age of oil, the Suez Canal came to not just symbolize... Uh, so on the postmodern end, it has a symbolic value, but on a very practical end, it was a material usage that if I want to bring supplies, uh, including things like oil for boats, oil for cars, oil for Jeeps, or, uh, oil for oil being a stand in for gasoline here as well. So, you know, obviously any of the yeah. number of usages of it, um, I have two options if I'm involved in wait for it, the colonial enterprise of the Middle East, North Africa, and India and Southeast Asia, which was basically the shape of colonialism as it tilted uh, from the 18th into the 19th and eventually into the 20th century as well. Um, I have to go around Africa or over land. And these both present a lot of problems. Um, meanwhile, once you make the Suez Canal, if I'm, say, uh, England, and I want to engage in some kind of activity on the Indian subcontinent, I can go through the Mediterranean, which is mostly going to be safe for me, and exit into, uh, what is it, the, not the Black Sea, the Red Sea. Yeah, I can exit cool. into the Red yeah. Sea and get right, right over to India. Um, this becomes basically fundamental for any colonial action, because... This is actually what makes the Suez Canal an anxiety point. This is uh, one of the, the grim contradictions of capitalism is the way it solves problems creates points of weakness. You make the Suez Canal to make warfare easier, but now everything is predicated on the Suez Canal. The minute that thing gets into any amount of trouble, shit starts to fall apart. This is, as, as he noted, one of the fundamental units of both the Six-Day and the Yom Kippur War were, on a material end, two competing forces, knowing that if either one controls that canal, the other one will, put, will be put under existential threat, both economically and geopolitically. And so, uh, and both of them representing larger geopolitical forces that don't give a shit about Israelis or Egyptians or anything like that. They, they only yeah. give a shit about themselves. And so you have endless bloodshed literally over something narrower than uh, narrower than a commercial parking lot because 
it represents the flow of oil for the acts of war and the acts of colonialism. And then we get back to the ever given. You have, now, we, we go through everything that I said there. And something that's developed under both capitalism and automation is the automation of shipping lines. Now, we don't tend to think about this a lot because, you know, you live in the modern day, you know, you go to the mall, you order stuff online. But just like when that American politician famously said that the internet is a series of tubes and everyone clowned on him, and then people <laughs> who work on the internet went, you know, it is a yeah. series of tubes, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. he's not wrong. Like, we've talked about this a lot on the show before. Um, the internet quite literally was born when we laid, uh, like, telecom pipe from New York to London and then from San Francisco to Tokyo. Yeah. And quite literally, the internet are these, these telecom lines. And if anything happens to them, the internet gets fucked up. Yep. America actually fought for a long time to prevent a joining of the European and East Asian lines because that would complete the loop. And the problem with completing the loop for America is right now we're the center. If East Asia wants to talk to Europe through the internet, all that data goes through America. This is very important for projects like the NSA wiretapping shit that literally wiretaps the entire internet because if information can flow in the other direction, it doesn't cross through America. And if it mm -hmm. doesn't cross through America, we can't intercept it. Um, so again, the, the material underpinnings of, of these things that otherwise feel abstract, uh, we develop as part of this um, robust uh, combinations of air, land, and sea shipping uh, because of one <laughs> fundamental element of physics you can't have two things occupying the same space uh, <laughs> so if, if you ship enough stuff we've we were actually running into this problem as well with um with satellites in a certain way if you want to ship enough stuff eventually you get to a point where you're like we can't add any more like air shipments because these planes are going to hit each other like yeah. there's just not enough room in the air um so we have this this split of land, air, and sea. And then on top of that, to keep them from hitting each other, because there's still quite a lot, you start automating things like navigation. That way you don't have, if you have like 50 planes flying the exact same path, you can give them very slight adjustments, both in terms of altitude, in terms of uh, lateral movement, um, all kinds of things to make sure that they're not going to ever hit each other. Um, this is why mid-air collisions, despite the amount of planes we have in the air, are like fucking astronomically rare. Like, yeah. like you would have more chance of being hit by lightning like seven consecutive times or some shit like that. And so there's there's a lot of automation that goes on with this, because if you left it into personal control, I mean, obviously you have a pilot or you have a captain or things like that to make adjustments as needed. And they they're an expert in this craft. But. You don't have them control everything because modern vessels are also very complex. What this gets to is that for something like the Suez Canal, it's very important that all this automation is done correctly. That way you don't get blockages. You don't get, um, you don't get like too many people showing up at once. You know, you have things scheduled in a nice firm way. So the fact that the ever given realizes <laughs> in the canal, not before the canal, 
not on the way to it, not like they get into the Mediterranean and go, whoops, we fucked up. They are in the canal and they go, oh, we aren't supposed to be here. One, how in the fuck does that happen? And then two, they try to turn around. This is a beautifully mystifying thing because it's a longer boat than the canal is wide. That's something <laughs> we've all learned. And so literally you can't turn around um, and they get stuck because they attempt to literally pull a 180 in the middle of this one-way canal. Um, I just So that's well the, like, we come full circle to what I was trying to say about postmodernism because once you start to iterate all these systems and all these symbols, the absurd will creep in uh -huh. and will rear its <laughs> ugly head. You want to imagine the world as this finely ordered, automated, functioning machine. But the fact is that, and this is, by the way, to go full, uh, full circle, goes back to mathematics, that the more complex a system is, the more likely that error or something unpredictable will occur within the system. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let me give you an example. Nuclear missiles are like the epitome of human capacity for destruction. And they're at the pinnacle of imperial control of the planet by the US and other forces. So you would think that they're like these tightly regimented, controlled, and ordered things. But in fact, the launch codes for the Minutemen second strike response system for the US was 00000000 for five decades. Because when JFK ordered those codes installed, that rubbed Air Force Command the wrong way because they saw it as them losing power. So out of spite, they set the codes to those series of zeros and that's the way it stayed because that's the way things work in the military. No one's going to say, hey, guys, why is this password like seven zeros? Because then you're like an idiot and you're asking questions just to generate extra work for everyone and shut the fuck up. So the codes to one of the strongest nuclear strike capabilities on the planet was just a series of zeros. And it's not, I mean, there is some malice here, but it's so far removed, like, Ten years ago, the commander of the Air Force Command, of the U.S. Air Force Command, he knew about those numbers, but he didn't change them. Not out of malice, just out of momentum and laziness and inertia. Yep. So <laughs> That was the exact word I was going to use. Yeah. So you think about these systems, and then you can just keep multiplying it. It's not just the Suez Canal or nuclear strike capabilities or the Internet. It's everything. All of these monolithic systems are, at the end of the day, self-replicating code and any bug and any absurdity and any hysteria that lie at the base of the project gets multiplied and um, spun out of control into these batshit insane systems that operate in batshit insane ways and make all lives on the planet demonstrably worse. Right, which is the perfect segue to our book. Right, we'll, we'll go through <laughs> we'll go through music in a sec. But I just want to say one little thing before we start the actual book discussion. That's actually good news for evolutionaries. Yeah, right. All of these systems 
all of these terrifying global insanely powerful systems are still insanely powerful and global and and terrifying but at the same time they're weak panicky disordered disorganized and sleepy at the same fucking time like the cia is at the same time this dangerous well-oiled coup and assassination machine and on the other hand a bunch of paper pushers that believe in nothing and nothing is important to them that sit in some office filing reports because that's what they've always done so there's potential here to understand these fail points to understand these absurdities and lack of a better word capitalize on them um and i think that's really a perfect segue into the book but let's go let's go for music first what are we what are we listening to langdon uh so i uh have uh an emergency lever that gets pulled every now and again and it's when certain uh-huh. bands put out certain music yeah so like tribulations one uh mentioned before absolutely adore them um uh honestly i even got i even bullied gareth into playing fucking dream theater because that distance <laughs> over time is a damn good album that that's a damn good album can't can't no really uh eden eden i i have seen dream theater live countless of times I know the lyrics to every single album from For Dream and Day Unite to Octavarium. The good but, run, yeah. Yeah, very good run. <laughs> very, very good run of albums. But I cannot abide by modern dream theater. I can't. Say that that is true, except for the fact that Distance Over Time is a banger because they suddenly remembered <laughs> that they're a rock band and not uh uh-huh. G- G- jesus christ the astonishing is terrible G- or it's made worse by the fact that some of the songs are really good and then you remember that the plot of it is two hours of what if ayn rand wrote game of thrones about yeah. how electronic music is bad did um, you know that it has a video game i did I did. Yeah. I wrote quite a bit about the astonishing uh, when it came out in order to try to understand why is this happening. Okay, um, let, let, let's move past like the shittiest current major prog band on the planet. I it felt like such profound pain. Anyway, yeah. So so the emergency lever. There we go. Um, I just got news that Sirithungal is releasing an EP of new material and the yeah, baby song out called brutish man child yes i haven't heard this yet um i literally just saw it in my inbox um uh cannot possibly say and one if you're listening to this and you don't know who sierra thungle is please correct this immediately um they thankfully very similar to manila road went from and something like morbid saint as well went from being a very undersung band in their time like they they did okay numbers but they weren't huge um and people in the scene in in the 80s when they were initially playing early 80s don't have like a lot of memories of them um but thankfully over time we've looked back and gone like no no that's that's one of them it's Um, basically they're the best epic doom metal band ever yeah they they're they're playing a type of music before a lot of these subgenres splintered apart. So they have little yeah. bits of Witchfinder General's approach to Doom and Hard Rock. They have a little bit of they have a little bit of Rush in them because Rush was 
huge to metal bands like Rush, huge Rush um, via the Iron Maiden channel of it right yeah like it's it's not the way that metal bands would listen to say fly by night or especially songs like the necromancer off of crest of steel and Cygnus x1 and be like oh fuck um you have a little bit of early power metal um before it had splintered into us and uh us and european power metal style so more of that epic fantasy kind of vibe the same kind mm-hmm. of thing that visigoth would pull from how visigoth have bits of of doom yeah. and trad metal and pa- um but like Cirothungal gave birth to that and yeah. so like king of the dead uh is one of the best albums i've ever heard period um i agree uh frost and fire is fucking immaculate um really they don't have bad albums they, have they albums don't have bad like, albums they don't have bad they have, albums they have albums i like less than other ones but especially those first two mind-blowing last year they came back with forever black um amazing uh, fucking great like it that was i had a pretty firm idea of what my top five of the year were going to be like pretty shortly into the year mm-hmm. um just because like you give me new Aranci Pazuzu, you give me new Ulcerate, you give me new uh, Spectral Lore and Mare Cognitum working together, making basically a sequel to Soul. I'm like, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, that's settled. And then Seerthungal pop in. Like, oh my god, Forever Black is good. Um, yeah, it's amazing. So the fact that... Uh, the fact that they've been so blown away by the rapturous response to it and are immediately getting to making new material i'm through the moon i haven't heard the song yet i guarantee it's fucking amazing um I have, and it's amazing fuck yes <laughs> <Very excited. laughs> um yeah so uh and also it, it has that touch of brutality that you need when thinking about capitalism this is i want to do to capitalists what um uh what elric of uh malnabon is malnabon yeah yeah motherfucking uh, elric yeah uh, cause most, most of their music is either about or inspired by, by Elric. Um, we gotta do Michael Moorcock. We gotta we do. do it. We do. We keep, we keep saying it. This is, you know what we, that should, that should come along with the book of the new sun stuff, which by the way, way. that, oh yeah, that's coming, baby. We've had planning meetings and shit. That's coming. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is Sirith Ungle with brutish man child.
I just love riffs, Eden. I just riffs. I just love riffs that, that go hard. I Jesus. I want to um, ride across the plane with my iron in my hand, slaying capitalists. Yeah, the uh, cursed blade of Stormbringer, uh, slitting Hungles. Jeff Bezos's throat in Minecraft. Ha, in Minecraft, Jeff, love Power, Minecraft. Power yeah, Dim- satire. Yeah, diamond, diamond sword, uh, killing him. Yeah. Many fold times. Okay. Now it's time to blow your fucking minds um, with the book that we want to talk about. So a little disclaimer, maybe before we start. Verso Books, um, the darling publishing house of the left, are, how shall we say, as the kids say, hashtag problematic. Um, (laughs) They are you know, one of the most prolific and I would say high level as far as quality goes, publishers of nonfiction, specifically leftist nonfiction. And they've really published like anyone who is, everyone who is anyone. Um, Slavoj Žižek and Adorno and Jameson and the list is just endless. And also more like smaller names and more current ones as well. And they do fantastic work in getting this stuff out there. However, one, they have repeatedly prevented their own workers from unionizing, saying that we're all leftists here, right? We don't, there's no bosses here. We don't need unions. This is like quotes from testimonies by workers for the publishing house. And second of all, have quashed several sexual harassment investigations into not only staff members of the publication, but also authors published under the publication. So I feel like that should be said before we talk about any Verso books release, and specifically because the way that I came across this book is is through Verso's recommendation. Um, that's the way that I stumbled upon this work. So I just wanted to get that out there before we start. But the the subject of today's discussion is a book by um, Keller Easterling called Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space. And Easterling is uh, a writer, architect, and professor at Yale University. And she's been publishing for a long time about the, the power in the relationship between infrastructure, architecture, and capitalism. She has several articles and books that she's published on the topic, and also a video game that I haven't played yet uh, called Wildcards, a game of Orgman which is supposed to be all about like hierarchies and how they organize themselves. That sounds fucking awesome. Um, and this is her main publication, I would say. And one which, you know, clearly cuts through her other stuff um, like a second thread and kind of ties them all conceptually. So I will say that it's a very dense book. It's very complicated. There's a lot of uh, theory in it and theory that you, even if you're, well-versed in leftist theory, theory that you might not have read before or not have, you don't have the vocabulary because it comes from architecture, right? So it's quite hard to read, especially the opening episodes, uh, chapters, sorry. So, So the way this goes, the way the book goes is it has an opening conceptual introduction that kind of lays out what it's going to do. And then it gives an example and then a theoretical 
chapter summarizing the example, introducing new ideas, and looking at that example through the lens of the theory. And what the book is trying to tell you is that well, a few things. One, and I am reading from the book that I have before me. I actually used like remote controls as bookmarks because I couldn't find my <laughs> bookmarks. Um, the operating system, that operating system, talking about infrastructure space, is something like the medium in Marshall McLuhan's famous dictum, the medium is the message. McLuhan highlighted the difference between the declared content of media and the means by which the content was delivered. The content, he argued, is like the juicy piece of meat carried by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. What a fucking amazing quote. I right, like the watchdog of the mind. So good. In Do other you words, feel like you get smarter just hearing that. Like, yeah. even if you don't think about it, you're just yeah. like, hmm. It's amazing. <laughs> It's amazing. Um, in other words, what the medium is saying sometimes prevents us from seeing what the medium is doing. In the urban context, we can identify the singularly crafted building as the declared content. Yet the activity of the medium or infrastructural matrix, what it is doing rather than what it is saying, is sometimes difficult to detect. So another example that she gives in the book is you walk into a lobby of a corporate building, think of like the Empire State Building or some other office building, and what the the space is saying to you is, you know, grandeur and power and money and efficiency and productivity and all that stuff. But what the space is doing is funneling you into these lanes for which you go to your separate offices, separating you from others, taking a communal area and sterilizing it into this hall of capital. And if you don't look past the content, you won't see the action. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, and now I'll shut up in just a sec. The second thing is there's a, there's a structure out there that capitalism really likes called the free trade zone. The free trade zone is a form of urban zoning and a legal system as well as an architectural practice that's been around for basically 150 years. If you want to think about it that way, Hong Kong has been a free trade zone ever since the British started using it as a trade post. And in this zone, it's an exclave, right? It's an exclave inside of a country, or an enclave, sorry, but not of a different country, but of capitalism. Because inside the zone, the sovereignty and the laws of the state in which the zone resides are suspended so that capital can flow more easily. Now this is where the Suez Canal starts to ring in your, in your minds. So that's extra statecraft. It's the crafting of power outside of the bounds of modern state sovereignty to enable the flow and the materiality of capital using those zones as its organizing form. Whoa, <laughs> that yeah, was a lot of stuff. It this kind of there were large parts of this book where I had to sit and just sort of chew over it, which is yeah. um actually some something I've been missing in general. That that's something that I really really love about 
uh, and, and you know you found like a good theory text when it gives yeah. you something like that and you'll just sit with a thought. This is more me commenting on how to read these texts on a mechanical level more than the material itself, which obviously we'll get to. Because um, I think a lot of times people force themselves into thinking they need to do one of two things. One is read through the book like it's a breeze, like you know every reference buried within the book. And obviously mm -hmm. for something like this, it doesn't really work that way. And you're going to run into a lot of frustration and difficulty because I'm not... Obviously, I'm not like perfectly well read on all these topics. There's too much to read in the world, but I've read a lot about things related to this, and there are still there are still stumper moments where I was like, "What? Yeah. In the, what, <laughs> the, mm. um, what is written on this page? I know all the letters <laughs> and the words which they make up, and I can get the sentences in the paragraphs. But what did it say? I put these in this order, and suddenly yeah. I don't know what it means anymore. <laughs> um, uh, like the way that a lot of magic spells for a while were just anagrams. Uh, but uh, yeah. uh, the other way is that we present sometimes as a model of reading this kind of text is very, very slow. And like you'll take a sentence at a time or you'll take a word or a phrase at a time. And this, I think, also isn't very productive because you're going to burn yourself out really, really quickly if you yeah. do that. And, and you lose the gestalt, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's like books aren't about this is something that I think we I've been thinking about a lot um there <laughs> without getting into it this world produces lots of moments where if you spend a lot of time thinking about reading and the mechanical act of reading and the hermeneutics of extracting knowledge and understanding from text yeah you you see a lot of instances where people either don't know how to read whatsoever or are actively being taught how to read wrong um yeah, totally and so one of one of the problems that you can run into, especially with something as meaty as this, is that um, every text can break down into like a foam of infinite depth. Uh, by which I mean, uh, Baudrillard comments on this, the Derrida comments on this. They're the ones that I go to most for thinking about that kind of deconstructivist end. You can break apart a sentence into words, into phrases, into verbs, into relations. And you can continuously break them down. And the fruit you get from breaking them down, you can break down. And if you go too slow, you run the risk of actually getting infinitely slow. Um, because you'll never run out of more depth to dig into. Um, and ultimately, that's not really what the books are about. That can be fun and fruitful if you have the energy for it. But it's not really what any mm -hmm. writer is doing. It's important to keep in mind that a lot of times, even when things get really thorny and difficult, a lot of it's because the writer is doing their damnedest to think these thoughts and then to try to convey them. And yeah. so we sometimes fault them for like, well, why didn't you convey it more perfectly? And it's like, well, they would have had to slow down the act of thinking the thought. Um, and they rely in part upon like in good faith that you as a reader are going to fill in the gaps that are necessarily going to appear. Um, thank God I read, uh, I've read a lot of Deleuze. Um, Cause that's immediately what my brain went to here. Uh, so they're uh, completely unrelated to this. A friend of mine brought up um, just through a thread to my attention of someone talking about specifically Deleuze and Finnegan's wake. And that the way that you're supposed to read texts like that um, is not 
in a deeply mechanical, exegetical kind of sense. Like you're not supposed to go take everything literally. I mean, we've talked about this before. You're supposed to have a sense of play. Yeah. And the sense of play means that you're not going to get certain things. You are going to get certain things. You're going to riff on certain things. You're not going to riff on certain things. And that's fine. And you let yourself chew over it. Um, and the fruit that you get from that is specifically bits from Deleuze of thinking about like sense organs and the body of capitalism. This book for me became almost like if you wanted to do, okay, but what's the material ground when he's talking about bodies without organs and he's talking yeah. about flow states and incursions and thresholds, like he's using all this poetic language and language of geology and stuff like that. Delanda also goes with a lot of language of geology as well. This is a really, really good primer of like very just blunt like Meaty. historical and material examples of those yeah. things of like and i think what the the move or gesture that easterling performs so well in this text is how she she kind of gives you the code in the beginning like she already gives you the answer for the book in the beginning of the book and then the rest of it is like looking at a thing and pulling aside the veil and showing you how this code manifests in actuality. So she starts from, okay, we said we'll talk about the free trade zone, so let's talk about the free trade zone. And she starts to look at you know, places like Dubai and free trade zones elsewhere in the Emirates and also in um, Saudi Arabia, but also in, in Asia and in other places. So that's, uh, you know, it's easy enough to understand once you read the introduction. But then she says, yeah, but the same logic of movement and replication and networks is also true for mobile networks. And then there's this like mind-blowing chapter about cellular phones and how they use the same tricks and the same code to replicate themselves. And then she's like, well, you thought that was crazy. Let's talk about standardization. And she goes into the ISO Right, which is like the international standard yeah. of everything. And she shows you how it's a bunch of fucking suits in Europe and the States using those tools to colonize the planet. Like she's not saying therefore ISO is bad. Like therefore don't rely on ISO components because they'll break. No, the, the standard is really fucking good. That's part of the point. But she shows how power flows through these arrays, through these um, machines, right? Self-replicating machines to dominate. And it's like, it's a holy shit moment. Like when I read the last, the last chapter about ISO, it's like this thing is so invisible, so obvious. Like I talked to my mom, who's, who she used to be a chemist, right? And when I told her something that the ISO was like political, she flipped. It's like, what do you mean the ISO is political? The ISO is the basis for our entire fucking society. It's like, yeah, you're right. That's why it's <laughs> political. Like, everything is ISO. Like the screen that, that I'm looking at, the microphone, the keyboard, the desk that I'm on, the chairs, these are all verified according to the standard. And Easterling does this amazing job of, of peeling back the medium, right? And looking at 
the content. Like she starts talking about the ISO for management companies and like these coveted standards for management that are fucking bullshit. It's all like turtles all the way down. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just a scam on a scam on a scam, but those scams self-replicate. And that's that's the third point that Easterling makes here. Cities and architecture and housing plans and trade zones and networks and all that stuff, they're all self-replicating code. To go back to the mathematics of it, it's no longer, it used to be addition where you know capital would just acquire and accumulate more and more things. Then it moved through multiplication Multiplication. Sorry about that. That when capitalism started to accelerate, and you know, starting capital equaled twice or ten times or fifty times more capital down the road. But now we're in exponents. Now we're in systems that play in logarithmic scales. Right now we're in systems that replicate themselves. So one of the examples that she gives is a suburb. Think about what was playing for my head is the opening theme of weeds. Right. All those tin cans that look the same and get replicated across this American landscape. But now look past the medium, right? Look past like what these buildings are saying to you and ask what they're doing, like what social structures they replicate, what economic structures they're replicating. Um, so it's 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 fascinating stuff that moves from the super material to the super abstract but but constantly keeps this very grounded view on these things and we we necessarily had an outgrowth in speculative realism um in the very late 20th century so the ccru yeah. is really in a lot of ways the uh, the birthplace of speculative realism as we know it they drew on other traditions but they gave birth to the thing that we know and it went in other directions we needed that in a certain way to parse a certain reality that that even he Hegel hints at and that Marx accidentally obscures doesn't do so deliberately. And when you readjust your frame of thinking, it's very easy to reintegrate Marx in a fruitful way. But it's important to remember that when thinking about capitalism and these self-replicating structures, that capitalism didn't give birth to them. It accelerated them. And that's mm -hmm. a crucial distinction. Um, the self-replicating notion of society is actually a much more deeply seated sociological and anthropological one that things like religion as a mimetic structure exists to replicate itself. It can yeah. be used for other purposes and it can be imbued with other kinds of spirits. This is where we get philosophical language of possession and manipulation of like a ghost seizes the body of another thing and uses that to replicate itself as well. You can also think in terms of virology, that a virus um, implants its genetics into an already self-replicating thing in order to get it to replicate itself as well. Um, so we have these social structures that obviously predate capitalism because Another thing that drives me up the wall a little bit is when certain people present capitalism as being a mode that's always existed. And it's like exploitation has always existed and capitalism is a current formulation of that exploitation. Um, but capitalism wound up being a very effective sort of flow state for these things. And uh, this is also where we get why Deleuze uses language of flow and language of organs and bodies 
uh, and bodies specifically without wills or minds, because we form this weird feedback loop that, that speculative realists helped pierce of there's the conscious part of capitalism, the part where capitalists are attempting to enact a world that benefits them. But we'd be fools if we said they want to destroy the environment and end life in this antenatal capacity. It's more that this is incidental and they don't care. Um, there are some of them certainly who probably are are weird antinatalists. Peter Thiel is a fucking weirdo, for instance. Um, yeah. But the important thing here is that these self-replicating structures can accelerate to a point where even the people who nominally control them don't control those elements because this is a natural element or natural result of the feedback loop capacity of them. And that the people that we think of as in control of these structures only control one chunk of that feedback loop. So when it's in their hands, they can control what they do, but there's this other part that accelerates beyond them and creates a new condition and a new set of contradictions that they engage with. And I really loved how, and those kinds of interrelations can get very complex, very quick, because you're thinking in terms of biological mutation. You're thinking in terms of the, the replication of human DNA and how one small flip up can accelerate out. Now you have a new species. This is where you get all that, all that kind of metaphorical language that philosophers deal with. I really loved how this book continuously regrounded that into very practical, real things you could point at. Because yeah. none of the concepts it dealt with are really terribly out there for, for people who are used to continental philosophy, especially continental Marxist and postmodernist Marxist philosophy. These are all pretty, pretty fundamental thoughts. But... And we, we've done our best here to make them easier to parse for people who haven't spent, <laughs> admittedly, and we've, Eden and I have talked about this, also Gareth and I have talked about it, admittedly way too long reading this shit. <laughs> um, that I, I just, I really, really adored how this gave something practical, like the ISO. And it's like, here's how certain flow states of self-replicating mimetic organisms uh, get manipulated by capitalism or created by capitalism manifest in this way that its manifestation is a, a non-political thing that masks a deeply political nature, which is again, bluntly the description of everything. Yeah. Um, and then here's how that political nature fans out in secret because the mask is so well constructed that most people will let this invading organism in. And I just like it's so deft and thorough as well. That's that's another like major um yeah. point of praise that so, I have for this text. I really like what you said about, you know, afterthoughts or reflexes or, or stuff that capitalists do just because they have to and kind of like attaches itself to their work. Because basically what Easterling Part of what she's trying to say here, we didn't mention the word infrastructure, which is in the title of the book, right? Yeah. So these networks, these self-replicating codes, these like underlying layers of things, that's what Easterling thinks of as infrastructure, right? So infrastructure is not necessarily, you know, the roads and power stations and all that stuff, or the supply lines that Langdon mentioned mentioned in the previous uh, part, although those are certainly infrastructure as well. 
but it's deeper than that. It is the conceptual packaging, the rules for replication that these systems come with. One of the best examples is the ISO, right? So the ISO is not a thing. It's a thing which orders other things, right? It's not an object in itself. It's a system of rules and codes for how to create and assemble other things. So that's why the ISO is infrastructure. If you go back to architecture, infrastructure is the asphalt and the roads that let your bulldozer move land to where you're trying to build. But it's also the plans for the houses that you're building. It's the um, conceptual understanding of what a house is and what is its function. And going back to the McLuhan quote, it's it's hidden by the content, right? The content, let, let's go back to the mobile network example. Admittedly, one of the most complicated parts of the book. Um, but let's go back to that example. A mobile network, you know, it's made up of its towers and its relays and centers and stuff like that. But it's also a set of protocols for devices to talk to each other. The infrastructure is in enabling all this commerce, all this communication to run on these smooth and well-defined flows, which brings me back to that potential that I closed the previous segment with, right? Because just like capitalism in general, all these systems have these absurdities in them, these bugs, so does infrastructure, right? And the thing about infrastructure is, like Langdon alluded to, it can't stop replicating. It's built to expand. It's built to consume and to continue to replicate itself. So let's give another uh, topical example. Just like the coronavirus vaccines take the body's inherent ability to create proteins and, quote-unquote, hijack that ability to create um, what's needed to fight COVID. And the body doesn't have a say, right? Once that machine that creates those proteins gets hijacked, that's what it's going to create. Same thing can happen to these systems. And I'm reading again from, from the book. For all of its efforts to be apolitical, the zone is often a powerful political pawn. While extolled as an instrument of economic liberalism, it trades state bureaucracy for even more complex layers of extra-state governance, market manipulations, and regulation. So if you think about the zone, just to stop here for a second and explain what, what she's mentioning here, these zones involve like all of these complicated laws and states of exception and contract work and bureaucracies to keep them running to suspend labor rights, to suspend tariffs, to do all that stuff. For all its intentions to be a tool of economic rationalization, it is often a perfect crucible of irrationality and fantasy. And while as spatial software, the zone is relatively dumb, the urban of equivalent of MS-DOS, which is a fucking amazing analogy, <laughs> it has quickly spread around the world. Yet, for all these reasons, the zone is ripe for manipulation, and its popularity makes it a potential multiplier or carrier of alternative technologies, urbanities, and politics. 
So what, what is Easterling trying to say here? So if you have this zone that already suspends state sovereignty for its own bureaucracy and power structure, then why won't why wouldn't communists hijack that idea? And she actually discusses here the free autonomous zones that are mm-hmm. made famous maybe by Seattle, right? Um, under the recent Black Lives Matter protests where a, a, an autonomous zone was created. But it's actually been used mainly in Europe to great effect, by the way, like to stop airports and roads and other capitalist projects from occurring. These pockets that um, declare themselves autonomous, right? But what Easterling is saying here, don't declare it as autonomous and then step outside of the system. Try to hijack the system's self-multiplying code, this dumb operating software, to multiply the zone for you. Take these free trade zones and make them a radically worker-owned space, right? Change it from the core. Or take houses in suburbs and change the basic code that builds them and watch the machine replicate those structures for you, which is a super interesting thought on how, yeah. It's it's especially fascinating to read uh, because it, it gets presented in the, well, actually, let me order this thought. This was one that I would sit and chew on a lot. (laughs) She accidentally, no, let me rephrase that. I don't know if it's an accident. I think there's a very good chance this is actually very deliberate. She describes in that basically a replication of Engels' argument against utopian socialists who Mm -hmm. build intentional communities outside of the bounds of the community that we attempt to revolutionarily overthrow. She describes in mechanical language non-idealistic mechanical language, why it's revolution and not segregation, why why you work within the world that you want to change instead of trying to step outside of it. Like she pins that down into very unemotional, very dry mechanical reasons, which does a lot to pierce, especially when talking to people of like, why don't we create an anarchistic commune that doesn't abide by the rules of blank and the frustration of trying to communicate. It's like, well, that will uplift the people within that, but it will not necessarily be franchisable in the sense of providing revolutionary uplift to all of the world, which is sort of the point of any kind of socialism, be it an anarchistic one, a communistic one, hybrids, what anything. Like, it's fundamentally not the capitalist notion of I got to get me mine, but instead I want I want to save the world. On some level, that's the underpinning thought. And she provides such strong mechanical ways in which to enact that within the world that you exist in, in a revolution. Like, she doesn't use the word revolution. I found that very... I, I don't know if that was a very deliberate choice on the part of her and the editors or just an incidental thing of her focusing on the mechanics, but she describes revolution without naming it in a way that I think makes it less abstract and uh, unapproachable to, to someone who might maybe poo-poo the idea of like, well, how do you beat capitalists at the end of the day if blank? It's like... Yeah. Oh God, that oh ooh, that got me all tingly. Like <laughs> especially on like on the for anyone who's read a lot of stuff and, and hits the theory praxis divide, um, which happens to all of us at some point if you get deep enough into this. 
and it gets really, really annoying uh, that uh, people would hit at the point of like, you shouldn't read theory because all that matters is is praxis. And then you get the, well, what's praxis without theory, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. That this splits right through that. Like, like an like an arrow splitting the shaft of another arrow, just like perfectly yeah. demolishes that whole question. Like that is, I think a general mass benefit of this book in general, like the way that I would sit and chew over. She's talking mechanically about the infrastructure of the world in, in the terms of the infrastructure. And my brain is burning with Delanda and Deleuze. And, and there's a bit of like, uh, there's a bit of Baudrillard in there and there's a bit of Derrida. And then she hits at this part and I'm like, oh, that's what Marx and Engels are talking about. But she doesn't, she doesn't invoke any of these names. She's yeah. able to communicate all these thoughts in very precise, very demonstrable and very physical terms. Like in things we can think about, like, like uh, her recurring, um, her recurring image of, of power lines, very specifically of like, looking at like how cell phones and electricity work. Um, just like, Oh, I felt like, I, I felt like I was like grabbing, uh, like sticking a fork into an outlet, uh, but for <laughs> my brain. Yeah. And I think the last thing here that I want to say, and then maybe we can, we can close this off is the, the cherry on top of this is that she starts to hint towards a new craft or even class of individuals that are able to wield the power of these zones of infrastructural space in their negotiations with power, which I found really interesting. And I'll, 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 I'll explain why. Ever since... Well, ever since Leviathan, right, like Hobbes' Leviathan, yeah, the idea has been that the sovereign, be that who you will, like the people, the king, the elected government, whatever, the sovereign is the final source of power, right? Power emanates from the sovereign downwards, and there's no sense in the question of can resistance to the sovereign be good because the sovereign is by definition good the sovereign defines the limits of the good and evil discussion now i think historically that's inaccurate there have always been ways for people to exist and interact and transmit power that lie outside of the sovereign but I think here in, in extra statecraft, Easterling points at a new form that is emerging, right? These free trade zones where business can happen uninterrupted and the only logic is the logic of the deal, right? The modern state brings that zone about, right? It signs the, the treaties, it signs the contracts, it builds the buildings because it's tantalized by the money that's going to come in but at the same time, it nullifies itself and creates a golem, right? Like a Leviathan golem, this new source of authority that is suddenly 
the ultra rich and not just the ultra rich in the sense of how much money they have in the bank but in the sense of the games that they play and the flows that they control right so i don't know if anybody here has ever ever been to such a zone and that's not an accident because the zones happen outside of the imperial core right they don't happen in the u.s or not even in the uk or france or germany although those countries do have zones they happen in the outskirts and being on the outskirts myself although that's a loaded phrase i guess where where is israel inside of the imperial infrastructure but israel does have a free trade zone it has one free trade zone and guess where it is it's on the red sea um it's called elat uh, and it's the southernmost israeli city smack on the red sea and there was actually a proposal to build a train that would go from elat to the mediterranean and compete with the suez canal <laughs> um but it was canceled in 2019 uh, but it was a thing and the lat is a free trade zone and the common like everyday manifestation of it is you just don't pay vat right like you don't pay taxes there and the idea is it kind of like you know emboldens local trade and brings in gambling is only like casinos are only legal there in israel and it brings in all sorts of trade it, it, except for the fact that it doesn't like famously the city lives off of tourism and it's not like an economical success and yet it continues to be a free trade zone why why does the state of israel um maintain that 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 space and th there are many answers some of it is inertia and perception and tourism for sure but i think if you go there there is a sensation of the power of money naked right like not even when you walk in i don't know the tel aviv stock exchange uh quarter where there's like lots of money and power or in some of the fancier neighborhoods do you feel this like naked power of commerce everything in a lot is up for sale on sale um traded haggled over and that's kind of the, the logic of the place right that's what the infrastructure kind of radiates this free free in the sense of unimpeded exchange of services and goods now of course if you amplify it last thing going back to the death cult in the emirates that's where the people die that's like when where laborers are worked to death that's how people's passports are taken from them when they go there to be migrant workers those are the places where all those contracts contacts are drafted the shipping containers from the ever given when they get loaded off they get loaded off in free trade zones so the tariffs are low um these spaces those free trade zones and ports are where people disappear like i'm talking thousands of them each month that are trafficked that are killed that are worked to death in these areas that are you know lawless right or even worse they have their own law the law of the zone right and easterling does a really good job of weaving it into the global system but showing how it's external and describing kind of like the movers and shakers of, of these zones. So, yeah, to, to summarize, it's like a really dense and hard to read book, but it's blown my mind like very little has in the past few years. Like it really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. Yeah, it, it's... 
I think I think it's important for a certain stripe of thinker who um, and uh, thinker in the sense of you think about these things, not not that you consider yourself a capital T thinker. Or you sit around and do nothing but think you don't work. Um, yeah. But to to remind us that sometimes these arguments or discussions that can seem very theoretical or very abstract or very detached from reality. Um, like, why do you talk about theory? Why do you talk about Deleuze and Marxism and the, the death cult of capitalism and things like that? Is they don't just represent. They are about a very, very real, physically real, like, structure in the world. Yeah. Like, to to bridge that divide. Like, these aren't, even when it feels very abstract, the reason why people like us like me and Eden feel so comfortable reading straight up just theory is because of the things that this book brings up it is ultimately about these things it's not about the theory itself it's not theory for its own sake it's about these mechanical abusive structures and what they build towards what they do how they maneuver she deliberately doesn't offer much in the way of explicit answers outside of a, a, a couple thoughts, to be fair. And we, we've talked about those, but yeah. it does a lot to. That was the most um, refreshing, but also sobering element of this book for me was how much it. Reminded me of that thing that can be lost if, if leftism to you eventually becomes a bunch of people arguing online yeah. is. Paul exists very the very, very, like, physically real element yeah. of what all these things are. Closing music. Take us away. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a good one. What, what should we play? So, you know, we got Sirathungal in there. Um, let's see, there's, uh, there's new Lion's Daughter, but that's, that's your Seasons of Mist, and I don't really want to play. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a great, great fucking band. And I hope they eventually re-sign a contract with a different label because very fucking fantastic, very future-oriented grind, death metal. Absolutely adore them. Not a big fan of the label for reasons. Um, very Multiple easily Googleable ones. Um, uh, do you have do you have anything that's like hot on your plate? Oh man, there's so much amazing music these days although like the year started kind of kind of weak but then it just exploded so i'm gonna oh shit there's a new arabrot oh fuck yeah. i didn't know that yeah um, there's a new arabrot but i kind of want to for the listeners a curveball and talk about one of my favorite current bands um, that just released a new track these guys are called boss keloid and oh, have you heard these guys? Oh, I forgot about this. Yes. Oh. So, uh, so Boss Keloid, these guys, when I first covered them on the blog, they were just, quote unquote, really good stoner, right? Like really trippy, thick guitars, music about weed. You know, you know the drill. But then they were like, oh, you thought you knew what this was about? Here's melted on the inch which Jesus, was what released. a fucking record what a yeah. fucking album <laughs> 2018 and it's just like 
forget everything you knew. It's like prog rock a la um, Gentle Giant and Gong, but then yeah. also Stoner, Elder, Black Sabbath, Meaty, it's, Sweet it, Dripping Riffs. It, the, the best way that I've ever heard them described is there if the proggy bits that Josh Homme has hinted at were allowed a whole album. Yeah. So now they have a new track out because they're gearing up to release um, Family the... the Smiling Thrush. Yeah, I saw the name before and I was like, that, those are a bunch of words, but they don't really right? coalesce. Um, That's straight and, nonsense, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and they released Gentle Clovis. And this fucks. This track fucks. And I also I have the album and it's so fucking good. So Gentle Clovis is like more straightforward as far as Boss Carrot have been doing recently. But the thrust of it, the riff of it is so good. And even if you don't like Stoner and you don't like psychedelic music, this doesn't sound anything like anything else on this genre. So I don't like psychedelic music, you should stop listening to this podcast, is how <laughs> I feel about that. But like Yeah. Yeah, if you don't like like having your brain break down while you're listening to music, then this is probably not the podcast for you. So <laughs> um, give this a spin. It's fucking mind-blowing. Um, the book was Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space by Keller Easterling. And this track is Gentle Clovis by Boss Keloid. <laughs> <laughs> 